0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 18th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see all of you. If you're a guest with us, my name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege this morning of serving us as we read and we teach from God's Word. So as you get settled, if you want to go ahead and get your Bible and make your way to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. We are taking our time as we normally do to work thought by thought through an entire book of the Bible, and we're spending the spring and the summer and probably the fall in the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. But for the last couple of weeks, we we got to chapter 2, we've kind of slowed down We've been spending a little bit of time in chapter 2 particularly, and we're going to spend a third week there this week, because in chapter 2, we get a snapshot of what Francis Schaeffer called a Christianity that can indeed change the world. You might remember a few weeks ago, I mentioned Schaeffer in in an address that he gave to the 1974 Lusanne Congress on World Evangelization. And he wrote and delivered his message around the theme of what kind of Christianity do we need to change the world? That was the question being asked then. People ask the question now. In light of all the global changes and the technological advancements and, and the smaller nature of the world now because of it in the 21st century, what kind of Christianity do we need? And Schaefer stood up at that address in Lucerne and he said the same Christianity that we see changing the world in the New Testament is the exact same Christianity that we need today. And he built his message off this. He said that Christianity was made up of two contents and two realities. And as we got to chapter 2 and saw how it fit in Paul's letter, we slowed down to see that the two contents and the two realities that Schaefer said make up a Christianity of the New Testament that can change the world even now, we see them all on display in chapter 2. And so we've tried to slow down and and expose them where they are that you might be able to see it working itself out. Schaefer said... One thing that makes up a Christianity that changes the world as we, that we see in the Bible is a grounding and a foundation on strong biblical doctrine, strong gospel doctrine has to be at the foundation. It has to be the root of Christianity if it indeed is going to change the world to the glory of God. Paul has been arguing from the beginning of this letter for the authenticity of the gospel message that God had revealed to him and that God offers through the preaching of the apostles and from the preaching of the church That's grounded in the work of Christ on the cross. You can look down at chapter 2, verse 16. As we began to kind of circle around on this, we spent time there and talked about what Paul was saying and how it serves the foundation. Paul said, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Biblical Christianity that can indeed change the world even now is grounded and built upon real gospel doctrine. But when the gospel is the foundation on which our lives and our churches are built, when it is the foundation of the Christianity, it produces in the hearts of God's people and in the culture of the church, it produces what Schaefer called a true spirituality. And by true spirituality, we saw Schaefer was talking about a vitality and a dynamic, a relationship between us and God who has saved us that comes on this side of the cross that has implications for how we even live our life now. So we spent some time last week in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. We began to see and kind of expose from where Paul is in the story how this works itself out. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. That was the redemptive fact of the gospel that is true about every single one of us who has placed our faith in Christ. Our former self, our old self, that old man was crucified with Christ. We are quite literally a new creation not shinier versions of our old self, not cleaned up versions of our old self, but entirely new beings. And the potential that we have to live the life we live here on this earth now in ways that reflect the beauty and the glory of the gospel is entirely new because it's no longer up to our willpower, it's no longer up to our intellect or our wisdom. Paul says in Galatians 2:20, it's Christ in me. Look at what he says here. We we spent some time on this last week. Paul said it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. He is the defining nature of our new potential. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this true gospel doctrine that's meant to be at the foundation, at the root of a Christianity that changes the world. gives fruit. It produces fruit in the life of a follower of Christ. It produces a culture in a church that believes in the gospel of a vital relationship between God and man that is built upon union in Christ but it changes the way that we live. It gives us an entirely new dynamic and framework for understanding how we live the life we live now. And so we looked a little bit last week at how Paul begins to introduce that, and it bridges kind of where we are this week when we talked about the phrase that Paul used in chapter 2, verse 14, of living in step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel that is at the foundation of our hope, that is at the foundation of our confidence and our assurance, it's at the foundation of our joy that produces this vital spirituality, it gives us an entirely new perspective on how we live. There is a way that you and I are meant to live our life that is in step with the truth of the gospel, that reflects the beauty of the gospel. It reflects the grace of God. It's seen in the way we think about things that we do. It's, it's seen in the way that our, that our hearts understand how we live in this world, and it's seen in the decisions and the responses that we give to different circumstances in life. It's living in step with the truth of the gospel, which gets us to the other two aspects of this Christianity that can change the world that Schaefer kind of put out there in 74 and that we see here in Galatians 2. It's not just strong biblical doctrine, strong gospel doctrine at the foundation that produces this true spirituality, this vitality of relationship between us and God. That is then seen. Now we get horizontal. It's seen in giving honest answers to honest questions, and it's seen in the beauty of relationships formed by the gospel. Honest answers to honest questions and the beauty of relationships formed by the gospel see, because the gospel is true, because we believe God's word to be true, because it serves as the foundation of our hope and our confidence and our assurance, we believe this entire world to be God's. Which means as we think about how we live in this world, how we respond to the things of this world, you could say that nearly every aspect or each decision that we tend to make about that is a decidedly theological one. It has to do with God. It has to do with his world. It has to do with we as his creation and as his people live in response to it. We ought to want to know what is God's mind, what is God's thought, what reflects the beauty of his glory, what reflects the beauty of our hope and confidence in him and how we think about how we live and what we do, not only as God's people, as the church, but in the world in which he's put us. Friends, I want you to know the the watching world, your friends, your families, those co-workers, those roommates of yours who are not yet followers of Christ, they have very real questions and very real thoughts that deserve very real and very honest answers from you and I. I mean, the world that we live in now likes to write a narrative and paint a picture that says that Christianity is irrelevant to what we're facing in the 21st century. But you and I know that not to be true. In fact, one writer, was saying this, he said that, Beneath all the great accomplishments of our time, there's a deep current of despair. While efficiency and control are the great aspirations of our society, the the loneliness, the isolation, the lack of friendships and intimacy, the boredom, the feelings of emptiness and depression, the deep sense of uselessness, it all fills the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. Very real questions about what it means to be human. Very real questions about what it means to live the life that we live in this earth and in this time. Very real questions of the implications that our faith means on how we live. And let's just be honest. Let's just be honest because this is where Galatians chapter 2 is going to go. You and I, even as followers of Christ, are not strangers to many of those feelings. You and I as followers of Christ are not strangers to, to honest questions that need very honest and very real answers. You and I face things in the lives that we live now, decisions that we have to make, ways that we respond to an ever-changing world, the place where God has put us, questions that require very honest answers. And God means for you and I. It's part of the privilege that we have as God's people. God means for you and I to be able to help one another come to honest answers to those very honest questions born out of a confidence in the gospel. This is part of the beauty of the relationships that we have born out of hope and confidence in Christ. Jesus would look at his followers in John 13, and he would say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, Jesus said, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. See, Jesus was saying there's an explanation There's an apologetic for the gospel, for the transforming power of God's grace that's non-ignorable. And you know what it is? It's when you and I love one another and one aspect of us loving one another truly is helping one another live in step with the gospel. One very real and practical way that we love each other is by helping one another think and live and respond to the world that we are in in ways that reflect our confidence in the promises of God and the work of God for us through Christ. One writer was saying this, it's the Christian's task to be able to give an honest answer to an honest question and then to give it. And then he quotes Francis Schaeffer again. He says, yet without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world can't be expected to listen to us even when we give proper answers. The observable and practical love among true Christians that the world has a right to be able to observe in our day certainly cuts without reservation across lines like language and nationality and accent and, and particular locality and cultural differentiation, and the more traditional or less traditional forms of worship and so on. The world must have the proper answers to their honest questions, but at the same time, There must be a oneness in love between all true Christians. One cannot rightly explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. An orthodoxy of doctrine, strong confidence in the gospel and in God's word, but also an orthodoxy of relationship. This was lived out in the midst of the visible church, a people which the outside world could see. By the grace of God, Schaefer said, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its doctrine and for the reality of its relationships. And the exhibition of the love of God in practice, this is helping one another to live out. This isn't just serving one another in certain ways that come into our mind. This is helping one another live in step with what we believe to be true about what God's done for us. Schaefer said, this exhibition of love, the love of God in practice, is beautiful, it's explosive and it must be there. Strong gospel doctrine, true spirituality, honest answers to honest questions, and the beauty of relationships born out of the gospel. It's in, it's in Galatians chapter 2, and I want to help you see these last two this morning as we pick the story back up and try to put it all together. In this time, if you might remember the story of where we are leading up into why Paul's writing this letter, the gospel is being proclaimed not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the surrounding region. And Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, but so are Jewish men and women. Not only Jewish men and women, but Pharisees. Those who had given themselves their entire life over to a rigid adherence to the Old Testament law and a separate group of laws that had been written over the years to help you keep the laws. The, the Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul used to talk about himself. We, we talk about Pharisees in here all the time as we go through the Gospel. They were becoming followers of Christ and were joining the church. And as people with these different backgrounds were believing in Christ and coming together, very honest questions would begin to spill up to the surface. People who had completely different experiences in life coming together now, only unified by confidence in Jesus, but how do we actually do this together? So the question was rising to the surface as the gospel was going out. How Jewish do our Gentile brothers and sisters need to be to be truly saved and part of God's people? These Pharisees had believed one thing and had adhered to one thing their entire life and they had saw Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to to, to Abraham back in the beginning. His promise even to Adam and Eve to send one who would one day crush the head of the serpent. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the hopes and longings of the Jewish people, the, the Messiah. And now Gentiles are getting saved, but how much like us do they need to become? If they're saved and through the sufficiency of Christ, but yet don't have to act like us and live like us and do what we do should they have their own church? Should there be a Gentile church and should there be a Jewish church? Underneath the questions, very real and honest questions that were beginning to come to the surface as people of different backgrounds were getting saved, it was ultimately, is Jesus' work on the cross sufficient for all people to be included in God's grace? That's what was at stake in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, when Paul recounts to the church a time in which he had to go to Jerusalem. And when he went to Jerusalem, we looked at it a few weeks ago, he took with him Titus, who was Greek. Titus did not have the same experiences as Paul. He grew up in a completely different culture. He didn't grow up adhering to the Old Testament moral and cultural laws. He grew up like a good Greek. But he had heard the gospel preached. And he had, by the grace of God, believed that he had received freedom that comes from confidence and faith in Christ. And after that, his entire life changed. He started laboring with Paul, working with Paul, traveling with Paul, listening to Paul preach the gospel. Titus is sharing the gospel out there. And so now Paul goes to Jerusalem. You remember, we went through the story a few weeks ago, and he goes to meet with the apostles to make sure that they're all in sync about the gospel that they're proclaiming. And he takes Titus with him. It wasn't a necessarily safe thing for Titus, a Greek believer, to go into Jerusalem at the time. Yet at risk to his own safety and his own security, he goes with Paul. And I don't know if when we did this a couple of weeks ago, when we started going through that story, or when you read it in your CBR, if you're following CBR, I don't know if you gave any attention at all to thinking about that story through Titus' eyes. Questions are coming, how Jewish does someone need to be to be truly saved? Do they have to look like us and eat like us and dress like us and follow all of our rules? Wait a minute, do the men need to be circumcised to be truly followers of Jesus? And Paul takes Titus with him and there in Jerusalem, Paul and Peter and some of the other apostles are talking whether or not we're on the same page with the gospel and Titus is sitting there listening. Here are these men in Jerusalem talking to determine whether or not he could be a true follower of Christ and part of the worshiping church or whether or not he, a Greek, had to become more like them, a Jew. Friends, this is true minority representation. Titus was standing there in the place of every Gentile believer who would ever come to faith and confidence and hope in Christ. When he got to Jerusalem, they didn't look like him, they didn't talk like him, they didn't sound like him. The music they would have played when they gathered didn't sound like the music they would have played where Titus came from. Everything was different. They would have eaten different foods. They would have done it in different ways. Everything about how they lived was utterly different. And Titus is standing there while they talk about whether or not he can be sufficiently part of the worshiping church or whether or not he needs to become more like them. Friends, these questions that you see battered around Christian websites and blogs right now, they're not new. They're not new questions. How they were going to answer that question in Galatians chapter 2 when Paul talks about that time in Jerusalem, that was going to determine whether or not they were going to actually be a true church that was in step with the truth of the gospel or not. Was Christ's sacrifice on the cross sufficient enough for every person, regardless of their nationality, to be made right in his eyes apart from anything else? Or would one particular group, in this moment the, the Jewish people, would they have a particular superiority over everybody else? Does one ethnicity have the right to be superior over others? Or is Christ enough? Well, praise God they came to the decision that there was no biblical justification for any group to claim any superiority ority over another. To do so would be to deny not only the doctrine of salvation, all of us being made one in Christ regardless of ethnicity, it would be to deny the doctrine of creation. That God, a very loving, personal God, created humanity, Adam and Eve, in his image and likeness for his own glory and every ethnicity and nationality on the face of the earth can ultimately trace their roots back to them. There's a unity that exists in creation that can't be denied and there's a unity that exists in salvation that can't be overdone. They came to the conclusion that to add anything to the gospel, to require anyone from any other background to add anything to the gospel to be more saved was to undo everything about the gospel. It was to lose it all. And so in verse 3, Paul reminds them that in that moment, in that decision, not even Titus was required to be circumcised. And that the, the apostles in Jerusalem, they added nothing to Paul and the message of the gospel. But those were very honest questions real questions amongst followers of Christ. Those were Christians that were asking these questions because of what grew up in the church being born in the time in which it was born. And people coming from different experiences and different backgrounds and trying to figure out what does it mean to live in step to reflect the truth of what we know to be true in the Bible. Honest questions to honest answers, but they're not just always big like that. Because it's God's world and because we're His creation, how we engage in nearly every aspect of our life is meant to be done in step with the truth of the gospel. So Paul will talk to the church in Rome. You can go read Romans chapter 14, and he'll talk about it to the church in, in Colossae, and he'll talk about it later in Galatians. We'll get in chapters five and six. But there are ways that we actually think about all the different aspects of our life. Paul talks to the Romans about what they eat and how they eat and, and holidays they observe and holidays they don't observe and how one believer observes this and how one doesn't do that and how we both reflect that in the way we think about the gospel. How we live is meant to be shaped by what we believe in and believe to be true in the gospel and it's meant to be reflected in the way we think about it and the way that we live. The beauty of it is simply this. In God's redeeming plan, he gives you and I the privilege and I would dare say the obligation to help one another think and live in step with the truth of the gospel. To steal a phrase from someone else, to help one another Press the gospel into the corners of our thinking and the corners of our hearts and lives. Friends, the Christian life, maturity in the Christian life is beginning to increasingly align all of our living, every aspect of our life to be in step with the truth of the gospel, to think about our life in the context of the gospel. One writer said to mature, is to increasingly see our need for the gospel and be willing to live in step with the gospel in all things. It's not sinning less. It's recognizing in every aspect of our life our increasing need for Christ. You and I get the privilege, and dare I say the obligation, to help one another find these honest answers to these honest questions that together we might live in step with the truth of the gospel. We need each other for this. Paul will tell the church in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching one another and admonishing one another in all wisdom. See, as you and I think about the different decisions that we have to make in life, the different aspects of our life that we're always running around in our mind, how we steward the resources that God has given us, time, our talents, our treasures, We're meant to think about those and deal with those and respond to life in that regard in a way that reflects what we believe to be true about God, about the gospel, and about his promises. You and I have the privilege to help teach one another, to help one another come to honest answers to questions of how we do that. Am I handling the the resources, the finances that God has given me in a way, am I stewarding them in such a way that's reflecting a confidence in who God is and what he's promised? Is it reflecting a confidence in his grace? We get the privilege to help one another through that. The way that I'm loving my wife, the way that I'm loving my kids. It's Father's Day. We get the privilege to help one another look at our life and the way that we're thinking and how we're actually living and to help one another figure out what it means to live in step with that is the way I'm loving my wife, loving my kids, reflective of what I believe to be true about the gospel and the promises of God to me. Am I loving them the way that he's loved me? What does it look like? We get the privilege... And dare I say, have the obligation, like Paul says, to teach one another with all wisdom. Am I living in step with what I believe to be true about the gospel in these things? And this gets into everything. In fact, this kind of was the driver behind what we're doing this summer in the Summer Dinner Series. One night, we're going to ask the question, are we as God's people, the the church, going to reflect Christ to a watching world through our unity? Is the way we approach matters of living going to be something that divides us or are we going to be able to help one another think about things and matters of living in ways that reflect the truth of the gospel and the freedom that's ours in the gospel? Are we as God's people in this day and age of changing things in this world, are we going to be a people that live in a confidence in the gospel and live in front of a watching world with a sexual integrity? Does it matter? Are you and I, are we going to use the technological advancements of our day to serve the purposes of God or are you and I going to be used by them and serve them? Very real questions that require honest answers. Very real things that we deal with in this life that we're meant to think through the lens of the gospel and the promises of God and figure out what it means to respond to them in a way that reflects our confidence in who God is and and what He's done. That's what we're going to deal with this summer. But here's the thing. We can talk about it for another 10 minutes. The question is simply this. Do you and I want to live in step with the gospel? Do we want to? Do we actually want to receive honest answers to honest questions? I mean, I just mentioned finances. I mentioned family, husband, wife, kids. Those are things we should be able to talk about easily, but we don't. I didn't get into the myriad of other things that face us, the temptations, the thoughts, the decisions that we have to make that require us to think through the lens of the gospel and respond in a way that would be reflective of what we believe to be true. There are so many pressures coming down on us, but we have to ask, do we even want to live in step with the truth of the gospel? Do we even want to think about all these things through the lens of the gospel and what we believe to be true about us because of what God has done and what God has said? Do we want honest answers to those honest questions? Because to live in step with the truth of the gospel as a follower of Christ and as God's people, it's going to require that we be honest. It's going to require, one, that we be honest with ourselves. Not just what are those things I'm thinking through, what are those decisions I'm making, not what are those different manners and patterns of living, but what are, what are the temptations? What are the struggles? What are the besetting sins, the strongholds, the dark corners that I've got to press the gospel into? Am I going to be honest with myself about what those things are, and am I going to be honest with someone else so they can help me have honest answers to the questions that I have and that my life together with them might be in step with the truth of the gospel? Do you even want to live in step with the truth of the gospel? And if so, are you willing to be honest? Honest with yourself, honest with others. Because the reality of it is, this is where the intersection between honest answers to honest questions and the beauty of relationships born out of the gospel intersects. If we want to live in step with the truth of the gospel, if we want our lives together to reflect the confidence that we have in what God has done for us through Christ. It's going to require that we're honest with ourselves, but it's going to require that we be honest with one another. Galatians chapter 2. You see it right here. Verse 11. Paul says in another episode that he's relating to the church, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? Well, before certain men from James, from Jerusalem, came down to Antioch, Peter was living the freedom that was his in the gospel. He was eating, doing life with brothers and sisters, Gentiles who like him had placed their faith and confidence in Christ for salvation. But when these men from Jerusalem came down, we talked about it last week, Peter was more concerned with their thoughts about him, with their perception of him than he was living in the confidence that was true of him because of what God has done. That he got up from the table and he went over here to eat with the men that came from Jerusalem. And Paul said his behavior was hypocrisy. It was hypocrisy. Peter was showing that fear of others' opinions wasn't in step with the gospel. Peter was showing that partiality, thinking more about one group as opposed to another group, wasn't in step with the gospel. That what was true about what he believed, that was true about the gospel, what was true about his convictions, were not shaping the way he was living. And Paul said, in love. In love. The gospel, for the glory of God, for his Gentile brothers and sisters, and for Peter. In love, he had to oppose Peter, not to prove he was right, not to make Peter feel bad, not to show Peter he was wrong, but to help Peter see how his behavior had been out of step with the gospel, that he might win his brother to be in step with the gospel. Friends, genuine love, kind of love that God calls us to amongst one another, genuine love involves Honesty. You and I have the privilege and the obligation to help each other see when and where or how we might be walking out of step with the gospel. Yes, there should be a proactive element to you and I wanting one another's help. We should be opening up our lives and what we're thinking about and the decisions that we're trying to make. We should be opening those up to one another, asking, help me come to a right understanding. Am I thinking rightly about this? Here's the decision in front of me. Here's the desire. Here's what I'm trying to do. Am I thinking about it rightly? Is it reflective of what I need to be true? Help me to see it. Yes, there should be that proactivity there. But you and I know that's not always the case. And the genuine love that we're meant to have for one another that's born out of our love for God, that's born out of the gospel at work in our hearts, that's born out of that true spirituality, it requires us, it obligates us, it gives us the opportunity to help one another see when and where and why and how we might be walking out of step with the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul did when Paul approached Peter in Antioch. He didn't wag his finger at Peter. He didn't show him how he had crossed the law, how he wasn't in step with the law. Paul confronted Peter because his behavior revealed something about his understanding and application of the gospel. Peter had drifted into hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy was just a symptom of a bigger problem. Peter had drifted from a confidence in the gospel. So Paul brought him back. Paul brought Peter back. wasn't to seek to win an argument over Peter. He brought Peter back to living in step with the truth of the gospel. Friends, this is the commitment that we're meant to make to one another. In fact, if you're a member of this church, this is part of our commitment to each other. We have committed to help one another to regularly refocus our hearts, our intentions, our lives on the gospel. When we have a friend, a brother or sister in Christ who is stuck in bitterness, you and I have the privilege and the obligation to help them understand what it would mean in their life in that moment to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven them. We don't just throw that at them and hope that it sticks. We get the privilege of helping them press that into the corner. How are you thinking? What's driving your thoughts? What's occupying your heart? Why is this what you're feeling? We get the privilege of understanding what's going on that we might help them be able to see how the gospel applies to their particular situation that by the grace of God, it can be pushed into it. That what might be out of step and unwillingness to forgive might be brought back in line with the forgiveness we know to be ours because of the grace of God. Friends, this is the kind of relationship, the beauty of relationships born out of the gospel that Schaefer said a watching world simply cannot ignore. It's the dynamite of relationship, he said, that you see exploding all over the New Testament. But let's be honest, that's not what a watching world generally sees, is it? It does sometimes. But I would say more often than not, it's not the depiction of community, of relationship, of beauty the watching world sees when it looks into the relationships of the church. I mean, let's be honest, more times than we would want to admit, we're not seeking other people's help in understanding how we're to think about certain decisions we're making. And if we do, we try to find people who we know think just like us. You know, we have all kinds of decisions that we make in our life. But if we're really honest, when it comes to things, we, we don't like to go and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is how I'm thinking about it. And here's my budget for the year. Here's how I've allocated the money. Am I thinking rightly about how I'm using it? Is there somewhere that I'm off? I want to reflect the fact that I'm confident in God's provision for me. How, how am I doing this? We, we don't do that. When they look in, they don't necessarily see a, a watch. They don't necessarily see a church living interdependent upon one another in an effort to live in step and to reflect the beauty and the glory of what they know to be true about the gospel. More often than not, they see a church dealing with the wake of attempts to correct people's walking, to correct people's behaviors. They see attempts at correcting of missteps through self-righteousness, a church not necessarily listening and going in with humility. What they see is the the painful fallout when you and I don't seek to try to, by the help of God's grace, win a brother and sister back to the gospel, but try to win a brother and sister over to our pattern of behavior and living. What's meant to be an absolutely dynamic display of the grace of God from the church to a watching world is often a wrong reflection of the power of the gospel. In fact, Schaefer will say this. He said, I've observed one thing among true Christians in every difference in any country. Whatever divides and severs true Christian groups and true Christians from one another, what leaves a bitterness that can last for 20 or 30 or 40 years? It's not the issue of doctrine or belief which caused the difference in the first place. Invariably, it's a lack of love And the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences. These are the things that stick in the mind like glue. And after time passes and the differences between Christians or the groups disappear, there are still those bitter, bitter things we said in the midst of what we thought was a good and sufficient objective discussion. Did you catch that? And what we thought was a true, productive discussion an effort to to help maybe someone live in step with the truth of the gospel. Maybe what was underneath the surface wasn't so much an effort to help one another reflect what we know to be true about the gospel. We needed someone to behave differently. And in those moments, with no humility, not listening to understand how someone's thinking, why they're thinking, what they're doing, what's driving what they're doing, that we might be able to help them press the gospel into it, bitter things are said, Schaefer said. Hurtful things are said. And even while the differences in opinion may go away, the pain of those bitter things sticks in the mind like glue. And then he said this, It's these things, the unloving attitudes and words, that cause the stench that the world can smell in the church of Jesus Christ among those who are truly Christians. The beauty of relationships born out of the gospel Love for one another, Jesus said, that will show a watching world that not only is the gospel transformative and true, but that's your mind, that I love you by the way you love each other. It's meant to be an explanation that they can't ignore. Rather, what they get is a stench. And Schaefer says, when that happens, the world looks, shrugs its shoulders, and turns away. It's not even seeing the beginning of a living church in the midst of a dying culture. Friends, it's the beauty of our relationships born out of the gospel by our love for one another and our desire to help one another together live in step with the truth of the gospel that the world is not able to ignore. But I will say this, it's in the place of hurt. It's in the place of disappointment. It's in those places that Schaefer was talking about so clearly where things are said that shouldn't be said. Things are said in a certain way they shouldn't be said in that way. It's in those moments where the beauty of our relationships and our confidence in the gospel has the opportunity to shine the brightest. It's in our willingness in those moments to admit to admit when we've sinned. It's in our willingness in those moments to look at another brother or another sister who we have said bitter things towards, who, who, who we've acted in a way that wasn't befitting of what we knew to be true. It's in those moments that the world sees and it causes a stench in their nostrils. It's in those very moments that the opportunity exists for the gospel to shine the brightest when you and I own. We own the hurtful things we've said. We own the hurtful tones we've used. We've owned our efforts to try to conform people to our image rather than helping them to see how they are to live in light of the gospel. It's when we own them and say that we're sorry, that we were wrong, and we ask for forgiveness. It's it's there in that aspect of our relationship, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the relationships it forms might shine most brightly. And it sounds simple and it sounds trite, And if it feels that way to you, I would submit to you that you have not yet done it really. You've not yet recognized where you might have truly hurt another brother or sister in Christ through your words, through your actions or through your tones and had to go to them and actually own that. To recognize that their hurt in their heart exists because of a a wound that you've inflicted and to tell them that you were wrong, to tell them that you were sorry, and to ask for their forgiveness. It's a very hard thing to do. But even harder still. And maybe the place where the beauty of our relationships born out of the gospel and an apologetic to the transforming power of the gospel might shine even brighter is in our willingness to extend forgiveness to one another when it happens. Recognizing our hurt and approaching someone in repentance, that's hard. Being the hurt, being the offended one, being the one who has suffered from that word and from that tone, and extending that forgiveness might be harder still. But you and I have the opportunity and the privilege to love one another the way that we have been loved by Christ. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. How did he love us? Friends, our ability to forgive one another when we have hurt one another is a visible demonstration of the truth of the gospel. It's a visible apologetic for the power of God's grace to transform. Friends, the Bible is clear. The world must observe a forgiving spirit amongst God's people the love that we are called to show, the life that we are called to live together in step with the truth of the gospel, left to ourselves, it's not just difficult. I mean, I feel it as I talk about it. It's not just difficult. It's impossible. And the more impossible a task feels, the greater our sense of need for God's grace to work in our hearts is meant to become the harder it feels to love one another this way, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with one another, to ask for and to receive honest answers, to honest questions, to be willing to extend repentance and forgiveness when we don't do it well, as hard as that actually seems and to myself as impossible as it seems. When it begins to feel that way, we're meant to see our need for God's grace in our lives in that moment in greater measure. One writer said this, and I think it helps. The test of a gospel-centered church. One that is grounded in the truth of gospel doctrine and living out the vitality of true spirituality. And it's seen in the beauty of these relationships where honest questions and honest answers are, are asked and given. And you can even make it of a person, the test of a gospel-centered person. It's not its doctrine on paper. It's its doctrine plus its culture and practice. If a church's gospel culture has been lost or was never built, the only remedy is found at the foot of Christ. That church needs a fresh rediscovery of his gospel and all of its beauty. It needs to prayerfully reconsider everything it believes and practices. Nothing is gained by merely repackaging the church in forms more attractive to outsiders. For as a Christianity that changed the world in the New Testament, it's, it's the same Christianity that will change the world today. We don't need repackaged forms of it. We don't need to figure out how to make it more attractive and more relevant. The Christianity that changes the world today is built of lives rooted in the truth of the gospel, lived with the vitality of spirit, born from union with Christ, and together lived in step with the truth of the gospel in every aspect of life. Friends, do you want to live in step with the truth of the gospel? Are you willing to be honest with yourself and to love one another enough to be honest with each other? Will you let the grace that you have received through Christ drive you to extend that same grace through repentance and forgiveness to one another? What the world needs now is the same faith that changed the world then. Let me pray for us and then we'll have a chance to respond. Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. Lord, that we can bank our hope, we can bank our confidence, we can bank the totality of our understanding of who we are upon what you have said and what you have done through your son. Lord, this morning we ask that you would do a work by your spirit in our hearts that would produce in us a joy and a delight and a confidence and who you are for us through Christ that would change the way we not only see ourselves, but change the way we live the lives we live here on this earth. That we would be confident in you enough to open ourselves up to each other and to recognize that we need each other to live a life reflective of the truth that we believe. A life that together we would live that would cause a watching world to ask questions about how in the world does this happen? God, we want... We want the work of your spirit and the power of your gospel to utterly change this city. We want you to utterly change us. And we ask that you would do that this morning by your grace, through confidence in your son. In his name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.